The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. If you would, uh, take your Bibles uh, with me and open to the book of Romans. And no, we're not starting the book of Romans yet. (laughs) But uh, I do want to take you to a passage in Romans that will be helpful for us as we continue in our series of messages to answer the question, what does a faithful ministry look like? What does a faithful ministry look like? And you could really expand that idea uh, to ask the, the question, what does a faithful life look like? What are, what are you responsible before God to do with your life? What have you been left on the earth to do? What are you supposed to do with the life that God has given you? And hopefully what we cover in the next few weeks will help to clarify and simplify that idea for you and even give you some direction as you think about how you need to order your life and how you should think about your responsibilities. And as I mentioned last week, if we were to take all of the teachings of Scripture Uh, concerning how we're to live, we could place our responsibilities under three primary relationships. Our relationship to God, our relationship toward the church, and our relationship toward those outside of the church. What is your relationship to God? What is your relationship to the church? And what is your relationship to the world around us? And last week, we began to talk about our relationship toward God under the heading of worship. And we examined Psalm 95, and uh, Psalm 95 is such a rich and, and powerful text as it relates to the corporate expression of the people of God as they gather themselves together. In Psalm 95, in verse 1, it says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. And then later on in verse 6, it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And sometimes we can think about, you know, these invitations to worship as if they're merely suggestions, but it's important to understand uh, that this is a command that we find in Psalm 95. It's a command to come before the Lord. It's a command to worship God. God doesn't just desire that we would worship Him. It's our duty that we would worship God. And it doesn't make a difference if you can carry a tune or not. Or as I used to hear, you know, it doesn't matter if you can't sing your way out of a wet paper bag. You know, it doesn't matter if that's you. You're still commanded to worship. God is still expecting to hear from you. The church must sing. That's that's what we're commanded to do as we gather together. That was actually one of the objections during the COVID restrictions because there were certain states where even if churches could gather, that they were banned from singing. But how can we not sing as we gather together? In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when Paul speaks about the gathering of the church in the same context, he makes it clear that we practice singing when we gather together. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15 says, I will sing. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. And if the church is a spirit-filled gathering And a scripture-filled gathering, it will also be a song-filled gathering. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, you know it well. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even the Father. To God, even the Father. Colossians 3.16, similar statement. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And what does it look like when the word of Christ is richly dwelling within you? What does that look like? With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And there's actually a connection between being spirit-filled in Ephesians 5 and being word-filled in Colossians 3. You know, sometimes people think about, you know, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You know, just, you know, does it mean I roll around a couple benches and, you know, get slain in the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Look at Colossians chapter 3. It means to be filled with the Word, to allow the Word of God to richly dwell within you. And then the results are that you would admonish and teach and sing with spiritual songs to the Lord. I mean, that's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. It's also what it looks like to be filled with the Word. Being filled with the Word and being filled with the Spirit are talking about the same thing because it is the Spirit who's authored the Word. So that's how you know that you're filled with the Spirit, that you're doing what the Spirit intends for you to do. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And a Spirit-filled and Scripture-filled congregation will also look like a song-filled congregation. I once had a conversation, conversation with the pastor who believed that singing should only be private and individual expressions from the heart. You know, he says, you know, you shouldn't sing when you come into church. That should just be what you do at home. But singing in the scripture is said to be to God and to one another. That's what we're commanded to do. We're speaking to one another, singing to one another, admonishing one another. And you can't do that in silence and you can't do that behind a computer screen either. This is something that requires the gathering of the church in order to sing to one another. We must gather, we must sing, we must sing when we gather. That's a necessary and biblical aspect of corporate worship. It's not like worship starts when the music begins, but it is a necessary part of our corporate expression of worship, right? There's so much more that belongs to worship, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But too often people only assume that worship and music are just identical. They're just synonymous for one another. You know, so when you come into a church and you say, let's worship, what is everybody expecting to come next? We're going to start singing, you know, because that is what worship is. But worship is actually everything that we do when we gather together. Hearing the word, serving one another, listening to the scriptures. I mean, all of that is considered worship. Like I said, it's not like worship starts when the music begins And worship stops when the music ends. If that's your only understanding of worship, it's an anemic view of worship. And you have a restricted flow of worship into every area of your life. Your entire life is to be filled with worship. Every organ of your body is to be oxygenated by worship. We're to to live not at a spiritually reduced level. You know, we need to be filled with worship in all of our lives, connected to all that we do. And that's what we find some help with in Romans chapter 12. So if you're in the book of Romans, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just introduce you to the, to the book of, of Romans. This is like an introduction before the introduction that we'll have in, in January when we actually start the book of Romans together. But the, the book of Romans, a major theme in the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. In Romans chapter 1 
verses 16 and 17. It captures that, that theme of the book, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, listen, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Where? In the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteousness of God, major theme throughout the book of Romans. And one of the outlines uh, that you could use for the book, just a basic outline, is that you have the revelation of God's righteousness in chapters 1 through 8, the vindication of God's righteousness in chapters 9 through 11, and the application of God's righteousness in chapters 12 to 16. And today, uh, we're going to spend some time in chapter 12, uh, the application of God's righteousness. And I do look forward to coming back to chapter 12 after we, you know, get through the entire book, just like the, the wave, the crescendo as it builds up into chapter 12. But let's take a look at this text together. Let's dive in chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and Father, we are so grateful for your word your word is rich, it's powerful, it's sufficient, it's authoritative. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. Now, Father, I pray that you would speak to us through this word and help us to apply the things that we learn into our lives. And may you receive all the glory and honor and use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As Paul begins this, this new section in the book of Romans in the application of God's righteousness, it's interesting that there are some very significant parallels between chapter 12 and chapter 1. And there's a clear contrast between the transformed life that we find in Romans chapter 12 and the natural and destructive path of the unregenerate back in chapter 1. So if you just keep your finger here in Romans chapter 12 and flip back to Romans chapter 1, I just want to point a couple things out to you that I found significant, got some help from a commentary just pointing some of these things out. But this, this is uh, significant. Romans chapter 1, if you look at verse 18, it says the unbeliever is under the wrath of God. Look at this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So you have the wrath of God. You have the unbeliever who refuses to honor God. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 24 lets us know that they dishonor their bodies. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Look at verse 25, their, their worship is deceitful and idolatrous. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And their minds are reprobate and without understanding. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And if you drop down to verse 32, they approve of what God hates and what God rejects. Look at verse 32. 
And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They approve of it. But in contrast to this list, let's look back at Romans chapter 12. What do we find in in Romans chapter 12? Rather than being under the, the wrath of God, the Christian is said to experience God's mercies. Rather than dishonoring the body, the Christians are said to present their bodies. Rather than refusing to honor God, the Christians are worshiping God. Rather than worship being deceitful and idolatrous, the worship is holy and acceptable. Rather than having minds that are reprobate and without understanding, the minds are being transformed and renewed in verse 2. Rather than approving of what God hates and rejects, they prove what the will is God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see the contrast here? Everything that we read about in Romans chapter 1 that marked the depravity is what on the opposite side is marking the believers as having rejected those things. Their lives have been transformed. We used to sing this, this song when I was growing up, you know, Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. What a wonderful contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 12. And what's the difference? Jesus Christ. That the Jesus has invaded the heart and totally transformed the life into something that it once was not. No wonder Paul says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, do you know what you were? Do you know where you've come from? Do you know what God has saved you out of? And I urge you by the mercies of God, present yourselves to him. Present yourselves to God as a living and a holy sacrifice. Do you understand what you've been saved from? That should be enough motivation to do what? Worship. Enough motivation to worship. That's the the basis of the command to worship. The mercies of God. That has nothing to do with was that person in key or out of key? Was that my style? Nothing to do with that. It has to do with, I understand the God who has saved me. I know what I would have been. I know what I was. I was a wretch. Praise God for the mercy that he's had on my life, the multiple mercies of God. That's why I worship. And the mercies of God really pulls in all that God has done from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. There's some immediate blessings of God, mercies of God that we find back in chapter 11. If you want to just turn your eyes up there in verse 30, chapter 11. For just as ye once were disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so that these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. It's referring to to Israel. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We can point to that as the immediate example of mercy, the mercy of God. The mercy that God has had on us, even though we've been disobedient. But it's been pointed out that uh, the word for mercy in chapter 11 is a general and common word for mercy. But the word that Paul uses in chapter 12 is a a rare word for mercy. Only shows up in Romans right here. And it's really in the plurals here. It's it's mercies, right? Which points out the multiple expressions of mercies that God has had. Which would include all that God has done on the behalf of the believer. 
So if we were to list out and look through the book of Romans and say, well, what, what are these mercies of God? You could talk about the love of God. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died for us. You could talk about the grace of God. Romans 3, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We could talk about the peace of God. Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could talk about the hope that comes from the Spirit of God, Romans 5, 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And as one observed, you could just keep going, the eternal joy, saving faith, comfort, strength, wisdom, hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, security, eternal life, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, freedom, resurrection, sonship, and on and on and on it goes. All the multiple mercies that we've received from God. And what does the mercies of God include? Everything that he's just mentioned. Everything that he's just mentioned. And it's all undeserving. How much of this do we deserve? None of it. Absolutely none of it. All that we don't deserve. And what's that? Everything. (laughs) We deserve nothing. Why should I gain from his reward, we sing, right? Why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer. Why should I gain from what Christ has done? I can't give an answer for that. God's mercies is his abundance of compassion on undeserving, ill-deserving, and hell-deserving sinners like us. And what should be the appropriate response to the mercies of God? Psalm 116 verse 12 asks the question, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies Present your bodies. I love what MacArthur says here. He says, what produces true worship is a grasp of salvation's riches, a grasp of the glories of saving grace. When you understand your salvation, that's what produces worship. And true worship is a response to the person and the attributes of God. So when Paul contemplates the mercies of God, he's drawn into responding. I've, I've got to respond to this. Like in, in Romans 11, when he's talking about the, you know, the, the mercies, uh, even on those who are disobedient, how does he respond in verse 33? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. And then he starts rehearsing scripture. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Talking about the wisdom of God. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Talking about the self-sufficiency of God. And then it leads him right back into worship again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. When we think about the person and the attributes of God, it leads us into responding to him. And here we have no choir, no band, no traditional, no contemporary, no gospel, sadly, no folk. Nobody's in key, nobody's out of key. It was just worship that just came out of his heart as he's thinking about who God is, thinking about what God has done. God, you are the one who deserves all glory. It's from you, it's to you, it's through you, all things. To God be the glory forever and ever, amen. And then at the end of chapter 16, after thinking about the gospel, preaching of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the mystery of the church, the expression of praise comes out again. In verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. And that's typical of Paul. 
That's typical. You know, he'll have a praise break right in the middle of a sermon. Right in the middle of a prayer service. Like over in Ephesians chapter 3, he's sharing his prayer request with the Ephesian church. And then in verse 18, he says, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So here he is sharing his prayer request. This is what I'm praying for you guys, that you would know the, 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 the height and the breadth and the length and of the depth of God, to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that you'd be filled up with the fullness of God. And then he breaks out into a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's like he can't help himself. You know, as I, as I start to think about God and what he's done, oh, to you be the glory. To you be the glory. When Paul was writing Timothy, he reviewed his own personal testimony. If you want to flip over there real quick, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's reviewing his own personal testimony. And he starts to be reminded of the mercy that God had on his own life. Do you ever think, just stop and think about your own personal testimony? Like what, what God has done in, in your life. Like, think about where you came from. Think about what God has saved you from. Think about the people that, that you used to be with that aren't where you are right now. And it's like, Lord, why? Why, why me? Lord, there, I can't give an answer why you would have mercy on me. Why would you pick me up out of the background that I was in and place me over here instead when so many make a wretched choice and would rather stay than come? How, how, how did I get here where I am? So you have the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy. Again, here's that word, mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And here we go. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like he can't help himself every time. You know, it's like, you know, when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he changed me, how he picked me up, how he turned me around, how he placed my feet on solid ground. Makes me want to shout. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. What is it motivated by? What I'm thinking about the Lord. God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. And when I think about it, it's glory. Glory to God. True worship is motivated by a heart that is overwhelmed with the grace and mercy of God. And you don't need any music for that. You don't need the music for that. Music can be a wonderful expression. I'm thankful that we have music. Thankful for all those who prepare. Thankful for the Christmas concert coming up. But it, it's, it, it doesn't produce that. It's an accompaniment. It's a wonderful expression. But we're not dependent on it for worship. And the command covers so much more. We're talking about giving our lives as a sacrifice to, to God. So much more than just music. Let's consider the command. Back to Romans chapter 12. Let's look at the issuing of the command. The issuing of the command. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. When Paul says, I urge you, 
It's expressing an earnest appeal, but there's also this note of authority. Like I'm saying this, but you gotta pay attention to me. We're, we're invited into this, but what I'm inviting you into is expected from you. What I'm telling you to do is right. I beseech you, I implore you. It's with authority. And in many ways, we're right back to Psalm 95 where there's a, a welcome and a warning. It's like, no, I'm inviting you to come, but, but I'm telling you, if you don't come, it's more than rude, it's rebellion. It's more than just being rude. So Romans is both an invitation, but it's a command. It's a delight and it's a duty. And the specific command that Paul gives is for the presentation of our bodies, which could actually be a technical term for offering a sacrifice. This is the same word that was used back in Romans chapter 6. It was used in a different context, in the context of slavery. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, it says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't present your members there. Don't present your body over there. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. And in that context, Paul made it clear that the physical body had a significant role in our obedience to God. God God cares about your body. What you do with your body matters to God. You know, the church in Rome that Paul would have been writing to uh, would have been largely comprised of, uh, of Greeks who stressed the importance of the soul over the importance of the body. And it's almost like, you know, what you do with your body doesn't really matter that much as long as your soul is right. And, and we have like common expressions even today. It's like, you know, well, well, I know what he did, but he has a good heart. He's got a good heart. His heart's in the right place. His heart's in the right place. I, 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 know, that, I know that he was foul, but, but he's, got a, he's got a good heart. But what does Jesus say? Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. So, so don't tell me about your heart when, when I'm seeing what's coming out in your actions and your words. That's revealing your heart, right? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, from, for from it flow the springs of life. If your actions are foul, don't tell me how clean your heart is. They're connected. The soul and the body are inextricably connected until we die. And even after we die, one day that body's going to be raised again in glory. So we can't get away from the body. And we are to present all that we are, body and soul, as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Leon Morris reminds us that first century people were familiar with the offering and sacrifices, whereas we are not. Listen to this. He says, they stood by their altar They watched as an animal was identified as their own. As it was slain in a ritual manner, its blood manipulated, the whole part, the whole or part of the victim burned on the altar, ascended in the flames, to suggest to them that they themselves should be the sacrifices was a striking piece of imagery. So here Paul says, you're to be the sacrifice. And they've seen plenty of sacrifices. (laughs) Now Paul turns around and says, "That's, that's what you're to be. You're to be the sacrifice. The language of, of sacrifice would have produced this, this idea of, of, of coming to die, giving my whole self up. It's been similar to uh, you know, Jesus when he says, uh, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Like, I know what that means. <laughs> you know, the cross wasn't a piece of jewelry that hung around your neck. Like, like that's a, 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 an electric chair. 
You know, that's a gas chamber. That's where you go to die. And here he is saying, you're the sacrifice. And they, they knew what that meant. I'm, I'm giving my whole self up. And this has broad implications for your entire life. It means that all of you belong to God. Every part of you belongs to God. Every part of your day belongs to God. So when you wake up and you go to work, you're to think of yourself as a sacrifice. When you go home, you take care of your family, think of yourself as a sacrifice. When you attend church and you serve the body, you think of yourself as a sacrifice. All that you do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's no part of your life that you can say, well, you know, God, that that part right there is mine. You know, you can have, have that, but this is mine. You know, I think that's some of the problems with the, the ways that people think about tithing. It's like, well, you know, the 10%, that's God's. But the 90%, that's mine. No, it's, it's, it's all God's. Everything that you have is God's. It, it doesn't matter if you set aside 10 or 5% or whatever you set aside. Like, that's God's and the other part is God's. So God is concerned what you do with all of it because it all belongs to him. Everything belongs to God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father, which means that there's nothing that you do as a Christian that's off limits for God. Nothing that you do. As a Christian, you're always on the clock. You know, you don't hang up your Christian uniform on Sunday after you get home from church. And then, you know, next week, you know, when you're getting ready for church, you get, hey, you know, where is my Christian suit? Where, where is my Christian suit? Right? No, no, it's, it's all the time. I, I belong to God all the time. It's all of you. As the song we sing says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If I really understand the love that I've received from God, it demands every part of me. So all that you do should be considered an act of worship. We recently celebrated uh, Reformation Day, and one of the blessings of the Reformation was the recovery of all worthy occupations. All worthy, all worthy occupations was recovered. Luther defended the idea of the priesthood of all believers, as well as the idea of a vocational calling, not just a ministerial calling, but a vocational calling. In other words, he taught that common occupations are not common. Whatever you're employed in is not common. That's to be given to God. God was to be glorified in our work. And he actually taught that God himself is a model of work. He's a model of a worker. John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. And how does God work? He works at common occupations. <laughs> Luther said, God is the tailor. He makes the coat for the deer, and he clothes the grass of the field with lilies. He's the shoemaker. He makes the hooves that the deer outlives. He is a butler who sets forth a feast for the sparrows. Your heavenly father feeds them all. He's a, Christ came to be a carpenter. Peter was a fisherman. The shepherds who first saw Christ went back to shepherding. And Luther said that even a mother exhibits the pattern of the love of God, which overcomes sins just as her love overcomes dirty diapers. 
He was saying that, you know, the next time you think about, you know, love covering a multitude of sins or taking care of sins, you know, you think about the, the next time you change diapers, it's just like, hey, this is just an illustration of what God does with our mess. <laughs> Removes it as far as the east is from the west. Like, get rid of this, right? <laughs> this is what I'm going to do with your little transgression here, you know? All that we do, all that we do is to be seen as a sacrifice of spiritual worship. Nothing for the believer is off limits to the glory of God. If you're a car mechanic, you are a car mechanic for the glory of God. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, that doesn't mean you bring your car lift in here on a Sunday and start, you know, working on the Ford and like, hey, I'm worshiping, you know. That's, there, there, there's an order for worship, right? There, there's what we do corporately, corporately, corporate expressions of worship. When we gather together, there's things that we're commanded to do, right? And, and there's things that the Bible regulates. It regulates the worship that we have together. But when we scatter, when we leave from here, like we're involved in all kinds of worship activities, you know, working as a lawyer, as a, you know, a, a repairman or whatever you're doing, mailman. It's like you're, you're working for the glory of God, carrying that bag for the glory of God. All that you do has eternal value if you do it in his name and for his glory. You're presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God. But there are some specific characteristics of this kind of worship. There's the descriptions, descriptions of the command to worship. Look again in verse 1. It says, present your body's a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Three, three descriptions of the kind of, of sacrifice we're commanded to present to the Lord. Living, holy, acceptable. Living, holy, and acceptable. Number one, living. We're to present God with our, our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is not just a, a one-time sacrifice. It's, it's constantly offering this up before the Lord. One person said the problem with uh, living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. <laughs> you know, we're, we're coming to God as a living sacrifice. But there's another sense that I think is important uh, to point out here, and it's that the, the term for living is used in the book of Romans in contrast with our old sinful life. You know, the old sinful life that we used to live was dead. <laughs> like, I used to live in death. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I'm, I'm dead to that old life. Romans 6.11 says, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body as Instruments of sin, instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. So when I'm presenting myself to God, I'm presenting myself as a living sacrifice. I'm not that old dead person that I used to be. I'm coming before you with a, a, a new attitude, right? I'm, I'm a different person. And I believe that Paul is saying more than just that, you know, hey, you're breathing and you're alive. He's saying, how are you supposed to be presenting yourself? You're presenting as those who are now alive. You've been given spiritual life. Present yourselves to God in that way. Actually, and I found this interesting, that uh, it was actually required that a sacrifice be alive when it was presented. 
So, so even the animals, the sacrificial animals, they couldn't just take a, a dead animal and bring it to God. No, that, like that animal had to be killed in a certain way. You know, it had to be brought to the priests and they had to perform the, 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 the rituals and all that and what they did with the blood. I mean, all that, you know, had, had an impact on the sacrifice that was offered to God. You don't just give anything dead to God. It's like, no, it, I mean, even the animals that you brought to God had to be living. You know, I know you probably heard that story about, you know, the farmer who had a cow that had twins. Then he told his wife, you know, hey, the cow had twins. The wife said, you should give one of those to, to the Lord. And he had a hard time deciding which one to give to the Lord. And one night, one of the calves got sick. He spent all night with the calf. And then he comes in in the morning. And his wife says, hey, you know, what's wrong? And he says, God's cow died. <laughs> God's cow died. You don't, you don't give to God what's dead, <laughs> right? You give him what's alive, and, and you're alive. You, you've been made alive in Jesus Christ. You are now alive. That's what you are to present before the Lord. I'm a living sacrifice, and I'm presenting myself before him. I've been transformed. I'm not that old, dead person that I used to be. And that's supported by the next word for the sacrifice, which is holy, a, a word that meant to be set apart, to be consecrated, Dedicated to his service. Under the old covenant, a sacrificial animal was to be examined, set apart for sacrifice. The animal had to be without spot, without blemish. But under the new covenant, we're set apart by the gospel. You know, not just like the external blemishes, but, but we've been set apart by the gospel that cleanses us. That's what, how we've been set apart. Romans 15, 15, but I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles, listen to this, my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He said it's, it's through the gospel. He says, I'm a priest of the gospel of God, and Gentiles are being offered to the Lord as acceptable, now being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So, so we now are presenting ourselves to God as those who have been sanctified. We've trusted in the gospel and, and our lives are being sanctified, being made holy. And that's how we're to present ourselves to the Lord, throwing off the old man and, 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 and the, the new man who's been created in Christ Jesus that we're growing in Christ-likeness. So, so that's what we're to be offering up to the Lord. Lord, I, I want to be a holy sacrifice. I, I, I don't want the, the old traits of my dead life to characterize me anymore. I'm a living sacrifice. And I'm presenting myself before the Lord as acceptable. And as one author said, sadly, like those in Malachi's day, many people today are perfectly willing to give God second best leftovers that mean little to them and even less to him. The word for acceptable, acceptable just means to be well-pleasing. We're well-pleasing to God. Actually, we, we make it our ambition. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 speaks about this, that it's my ambition to please you. Like, that's my desire. I, I live to please God. I live to be acceptable to him. And what does it mean to be acceptable, to be well-pleasing, to offer to God what's desirable to him? If you have any questions about that, all you have to do is look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove 
what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we offer to him what's acceptable? It's by the renewal of our minds, proving the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Does, does that help expand your understanding of worship a little bit? Worship is motivated by the person and attributes of God, not simply the music. Worship encompasses all of life, not only the corporate gatherings of the church. Worship is a description of a transformed life that is dedicated to God in holiness and presents to God that which is well-pleasing to him. So we could say worship involves the mind being renewed, the will being conformed, and the life being transformed. But not only that, there's also a defense of worship, and this is where we'll end here, the defense of worship. Look again at verse 1. It says, which is your spiritual service of worship? If you're reading a, a, a different version, that word spiritual may be translated differently. The King James, New King James, it says reasonable. NASB, ESV, LSB says spiritual. NIV says true and proper. And it's not because they're translating a, a different word. It's just because there's some debate as to how it should be translated. And the only other time this word is used is over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Just want to flip you over there real quick. 1 Peter chapter 2. And over in 1 Peter 2, we find the, the word used again. I'll go ahead and uh, read the, the passage for you. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, verse 2, like newborn babies, Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And here we have the, the same word that's used, but instead of being translated spiritual, it's translated of the word. King James, New King James, NASB, LSB translated the milk of the word. It's of the word. ESV, NIV translated spiritual. And what's behind this is the, the word, it's only used in these two places, it's, it's the, the Greek word logikos. And you can hear our English word logic or logical in that. So how do we get the translation spiritual from logical? Like, like how, how do they get to that? Over in 1 Peter 2, what Peter is saying is that the kind of milk that I'm talking about, it's not a natural kind of milk. It's not a physical milk that I'm talking about. And that's why some translations say it's spiritual, just to say it's not a natural kind of milk. It's milk that's concerned with the truth, with reasoning, with words, with logic. And in the context, you know, if you look a little further up in uh, chapter 1, it says in verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That, that's what is going to feed you. It's the, the word of God. So uh, the translation of the word would fit there. And over in Romans chapter 12, it's using the same word. And here again, I believe that the translators are saying the same thing, that you know, the sacrifice that we give to the Lord is not a, not a physical sacrifice. We're not offering bulls and goats and rams anymore. It's a, it's a spiritual sacrifice. But I believe a better translation of this word would be a, a reasonable, logical. It's, it's of the word. It has to do with the, the words, the understanding. So we're bringing sacrifices to the Lord, but these sacrifices we bring to the Lord are of a reasonable or rational nature. We're bringing what is right. One commentator who's been helpful in this regard says, the recently spiritual has often been favored as a translation. Here in the, uh, here in the view has been maintained that 
The point Paul intended to make was that the offering of themselves was a sacrifice that was spiritual worship in the sense of being opposed to a matter of external rights. You know, again, bringing the animals, sacrifices. But it's much more likely that his point was that it is rational, that it's consistent with a proper understanding of the truth of the gospel. Understanding intelligent worship. And Greek philosophers often use the same word for that which was rational. MacArthur also adds this, our offerings to God are certainly to be spiritual, but that is not what Paul is speaking about at this point. The apostle is saying that in light of the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, his unsearchable judgments, unfathomable ways, because from him and through him and to him are all things, the service of worship is reasonable. It's only our reasonable, rational response to present to God all that we have. And that's the the way I believe it's best translated here, that it only makes sense. It's only reasonable. It's only rational that we would give to God everything that we have. Isn't that just logical? Doesn't that just make sense? It's a defense of this command to worship. It's reasonable. It's logical. Just makes sense. It's like putting two and two together. Of course I would worship. Of course I would. What reason could I give not to worship my creator? Are you kidding me? The one who made me? You know, Psalm 100 says you didn't make yourself. You know, it's he who made you, not you yourself, and you're not going to worship the one who made you? But there are some, and maybe even some who are here, who reason in themselves that I, I, I don't think it's reasonable to worship. I've got, I've got reasons why I'm, I'm not worshiping. I think I've told you the story before about how I, I was sharing the gospel with one gentleman, and he says, you know, I asked him, you know, what, what, what would prevent you from coming to know the Lord? What would prevent you from trusting in Christ now? He says, well, I'm not going to worship anybody. That's how he responded. I'm not going to worship anybody. For him, it didn't make sense to worship. I, I might thank somebody, but I'm not going to worship anybody. I'm not worshiping. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I'm, I'm not a worshiper. I'm, I'm visiting. You know, I'm watching what people do and singing the songs and whatever they're doing, praying and, you know, standing up and sitting down when the word is being read. And, you know, that's, that's nice. I'll, I'll stand because I don't want to look out of place awkward. But yeah, my, my heart's not, not in this. This isn't reasonable to me. You're not motivated by the person and attributes of God. And actually for you, the, the music means a lot more to you than the words do. My wife had a, a Jewish choir director in her high school who would perform Handel's Messiah. And it wasn't the words that moved him. <laughs> it was the music. The Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's Messiah quotes from Revelation 19.6, 11.15, 19.16. Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's talking about Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords. It wasn't the words that were moving him to, to direct the choir to sing that song. It was the music. I, I love the music. It's great music. We love Handel. Let's sing Handel. But it has nothing to do with the words. And maybe that's you. You're, you're, you know, I, I like gospel music. I remember, I, you know, when I was sharing the gospel, I asked the guy, have you ever heard of the gospel? He said, yeah, I love gospel music. <laughs> no, no, the, the gospel, like the words behind the music, right? I love, I love gospel music. Sure I do. The music moves them, not the words. Maybe for you, worship never even enters your mind as an explanation for all of your life. 
that every part of my being would be connected to the worship of God. My body's my own, right? You know, my body, my choice. Live and let live. What does an ancient text have to do with the choices I make? I remember a popular personality saying something like, what does God care what I do in my bedroom? Worship doesn't affect all of your life. You have no connection to God in all that you do, all the decisions you make. The description of worship as a life which is well-pleasing to God is foreign to you. You know, life for you is about yourself, your family, your friends, maybe some social causes, you know, caring for people, caring for animals, caring for the environment. You know, you feel good about yourself, have little to anything to do with God. But I'm a good person. Look at all that I do. Look at what I do. Worship doesn't involve your mind. It seems like a waste of time for people to be so concerned with the Bible, transforming them, avoiding the influences of the world. Ooh, the influences of the world. You got to watch out for that. You know, you Christians, just so tight. Worship for you is anything but logical. It's foolish, irrational, unreasonable, unintelligent. There's a number of other things that I could be doing with my life, right? But let me remind you who Romans chapter 12 is for. Who's Romans chapter 12 for? Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, I urge you, brethren. This is a family discussion. This, this is what the family does. When the, when the family of God gets together, what do we do? We worship. When the family of God scatters, what do they do? They worship. This is what the brethren do. Those who are part of the family of God, that's what we do. Romans 12 is for the family of God. There's another chapter in Romans for you if you're not part of the family of God. And it's what we read earlier. It's Romans chapter 1. That's, that's your chapter. Where it says that the unbeliever is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I don't want to think about who this God is who created me. So I'll ignore him. I'll push him down. You know, I'll add and pile on all my arguments on top of him because I don't want to think about that over there. That's what the unbeliever does. They refuse to honor God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks. The Bible says that you know that there's a God out there, but you don't want to honor him, so you refuse to worship. Become futile in your mind, you refuse to honor God. Darkened. Your foolish heart is darkened. It says they dishonor their bodies. God gives them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. The, the, the body that's been created in the image of God and you take it and do what you want with it. I'll take God's good gifts and do what I please. It's like the, the prodigal son, Luke 15, taking the good gifts of God and going out and wasting them. Prodigal just means a wasted life. Wasteful living. I'll, I'll do what I want with the life that God has given me. I don't have to check in with him. I'll do what I want. Dishonor my body, it's my body. Do what I want with my body. What does he care what I do with it? Worship of is idolatrous, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, serving the creature more than the creator because you're your own God. Their minds are reprobate without understanding. They don't see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gives them over to a depraved mind to do what is not proper. And then they approve of what God hates. They have a parade. They know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, but they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval. 
this is, these are our people. He's going to celebrate it. Celebrate their rebellion against God. But if you're here today, that doesn't have to be you. <laughs> doesn't have to be you. Just, just real quick, since we're already in the book of Romans. What does Romans chapter 3, verse 10 say? As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. None who understands, none who seeks for God, all have turned aside together. They've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you. God's glory is the standard and you fall short. You fall woefully beneath his righteous standard. And what do you deserve because you've turned against him? Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What you deserve for your sins is eternal death. That's what it's contrasted with. The gift of God is eternal life. On the opposite side, what is there? There's eternal death. It's, it's the, the, the wages of your sin. That's what you earn when you rebel against God. I earn my wages. I earn an eternity separated from God in a place of torment and punishment in hell. That's what I deserve for my sins. Because I've rejected, rebelled, raised my fist against the God who created me. I will not have this God to rule over me. I will do what I want. And God says, what you earn for that is eternal death. Because God is so glorious. God is so worthy. God is so worthy of worship. Like I said, for you to deny worship to the God that created you, it's not just rude, it's rebellion, it's wickedness, it's sin against the high and the holy one. The one who reigns forever. It's rebellion against him. And what did God do? Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then I miss verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? What did Jesus do? Jesus left the glories of heaven to come down to this wretched, sinful earth, the earth that rejected him, and determined that he would live the life of pure worship and honor and holiness to the God that you've been rebelling against. I will live the life that you could not live. I will always glorify God. The Bible says that, that he could always say that the Father was pleased with everything that he did. The Father is always pleased with me. That's the way that we're supposed to live, right? Acceptable to God. He always lived acceptable to God. He lived the perfect life. And when he died on the cross, he did not die for his own sins. He died for the wretched rebellion that you've committed against God. He died. He gave up his life. So that... Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in what? Salvation. You can be saved from the penalty of your sins if you would turn from your rebellion and turn to Christ today. Would, would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, right? There's power in the blood. Would you be free? Would you have life? 
There's only one place that you can find life. Jesus says that, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Would you come to Christ and find life today? If you're here today and you're not a worshiper of God, we would, we would urge you. We would plead with you. By the authority of Scripture, we would command. It's the, the command of Scripture to come to Christ that you might have life. If you're here today, you want to know more about Christ, we'll have some uh, prayer counselors up here at the front. would love to talk to you. You can go to our visitor's table. People would love to talk to you there about what it means to, to have a relationship with the, the guy that you've turned against. Amen. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for this time that we've had today in your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use these words to, to transform our lives. And Father, that it would draw us to Christ. And Father, that we would be led to worship as we think about our own lives and what you've done for us. That we would shout out, hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the, the salvation that you've given to us. Thank you, Jesus, for the life that you've given for us. And Father, I pray that if there are any here today who do not know the Son, and Father, that today would be the day that they would enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ for today and for all of eternity. And may you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.